But if you have your Bibles, amen. We don't have to have. Listen, uh, our worship today is not confined to technology or by technology. You know that. You remember we come in here last year and we had the power out on us. And we went out on the front porch and we still worship Jesus. And Jesus still spoke to our hearts. Well, he's the same God then as he is now. And so let's worship the Lord together through uh, the Word of God, devil's not going to get the best of this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I love you. God, I thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And although distractions happen and things happen, God, you know well in advance all that is going on. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in my heart as I share what your Word says. And that's vain and empty unless your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. So God, give us hearts ready to hear what you have to say, ready to respond, ready to admit, ready to repent, ready to make things right with you. God, I pray you'd have our hearts today. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Psalm chapter number 63 and verses 1 through 7. Psalm 63 In verses 1 through 7, this happens to be one of my favorite passages of Scripture, one that I've oftentimes been drawn back to again and again. And I need this this week. I I, I need uh, God's Word and what it says here all week long. God's been dealing with my heart about my own state, my own lethargic state. And, uh, And I want you to look with me at Psalm 63. And I need this just as much as anyone here. Psalm 63, verse number 1. O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory. So as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed, And meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Obviously this is a uh, a psalm that is written by the great psalmist David. Much of the uh, the book of Psalms is written by David the, the poet king. And so you know when it comes to David we all know that. King David was a great, a great man. David was divinely selected by God. When Samuel was was, uh, incited by direct revelation from God to go among the sons of Jesse to find a king to replace Saul uh, the Benjamite who had been a rebellious king as far as God's concerned and disqualified himself from being the role of Israel's leader on the throne, God used Samuel to divinely select 
the young boy, you know all the story, how that uh, 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 Jesse had ten sons and Samuel and went to every single one of them. Eliab was strong and mighty, looked like he had, been, he had been just what the doctor ordered for a king of Israel. But on down the list, God rejected until he came to the last, the youngest son. Don't you have any more sons? Samuel says, oh yeah, we have one, but we didn't even invite him because he's so far out, you would have chosen him. But God divinely selected David. Of course, David goes on. He goes from that point to being the hero of Israel in leading uh, the, to slay the giant of the Philistines, Goliath of Gath. You know the story of David and Goliath, how that young boy with his sling took down the great Philistine and led the charge against the Philistine army. As a king that he would become later on, he expanded Israel, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Israel and its strength among the nations. He was a man, a king like none other. Even today, he ranks as one of the greatest kings in all of human history. But David was also not only a great man, but he was a grievous man. King David had willingly committed adultery by taking the wife of one of his own soldiers Following the news of her unexpected pregnancy, he tried to cover it up by putting Uriah the Hittite, her husband, in harm's way. When that didn't take place, he brought him home to try to get him to have uh, uh, relations with his wife. He wouldn't do it. And so finally David put him on the front lines and more or less killed him by his own orders. He was a man uh, that was a man... Uh, that was grievous. He, he tra- and then after Uriah the Hittite died, David portrayed himself as this magnanimous leader in front of all the people of Israel saying, well, I'll just marry Uriah's wife. And oh, how all of Israel looked and said, well, look, look, at, what, look at what King David has done for his fallen soldier. Painted himself to look really good in front of the whole nation when in reality nothing could be further from the truth. David had been a deceiver. He had, he had sinned against God. So with such a black mark, a, a black character mark, why does the Bible say twice in which it reiterates that David was a man after God's own heart? It's said in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and it is repeated in the New Testament in Acts 13, 22. Why that was man, although great, granted was great, a warrior, a brave man, a man that had, uh, had uh, the armies of God uh, uh, under his command, a great leader, but yet with such flaws in character, why would the Bible say of only David he was a man after God's own heart? I believe it is found, the reason that he is called a man after God's own heart, I believe it is found in David's desire for God. David had a desire, a pining desire for God. Just like all of us, he's made of flesh and blood, he's going to fail, he's going to falter. But beyond that, he continues to have a desire for God. Through his successes 
and his failures, David desired the worship of God. He desired the word of God. He desired the wonders of God. When you read the Psalms, you cannot help but see that in this man's ups and downs, he was a man that was desperate, that was dependent upon God. Time and time again, what he really wanted most of all was God. I believe that Psalm 63 here really distills this truth about David's yearning desire for God. You know, my question to you today is this. Do you have a desire for God? David had a hunger. David had a drive. David had a pursuit of the living God. The Psalms explode with his praise, with his yearning for, with his uh, drawing request after request. Oh God, draw to me. Give me your ear. Incline your ear. All these requests. There's a yearning desire for God. The question is for us today, do we desire God? Is a daily walk with the Lord Jesus. Now David, David is in that old covenant. He knows God by the tabernacle. He knows God by his offerings, by his rituals, by his standards. He knows God by alone the law of God, Deuteronomy, all the do's and don'ts. And yet he has a pursuit of God that makes all, most of ours, all of ours, look pathetic and puny when we're in the new covenant with a Christ that was shaped just like us in the form of flesh that walked among us, that was one of us, that could identify with us. We have the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. We have the indwelling presence of, of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And yet we... Admittedly, admittedly, we do not share the same pining, earnest, desperate desire for God that David does. What a difference. What is missing? What is missing in our desire for God? Have the cares and crises of life overtaken our desire for God? Are there things in life that have distracted us from our desire for God? What is it? How do I get into a place where I desire God like David desired God? I believe we can see that in three aspects in these verses. So the first thing I want you to see is a desire for God is seen in a desperation. A desperation. You know, it's believed that this Psalm of David, Psalm 63, was written when David was being pursued by Saul. You know the story how that although David was anointed king, he wasn't the king. There was already a king. And that king Saul, no matter how rebellious, he wanted to turn that kingship over to his son Jonathan. Do you remember that? And so this, this one that Samuel had anointed had to be taken out of the picture so that Jonathan could be the king. And so Saul was searching high and low 
for David, chasing him across the countryside, trying to find him. You remember how David cleverly snuck in and cut something off of his garment and basically said, I could have killed you, Saul. I could have killed you. And yet Saul still pursued even harder to kill David. And so this psalm is written in a time when David's running for his life. He's far from Jerusalem. He's far from Jesse's home in Bethlehem. He's far from the comforts and the familiar surroundings of the tabernacle in Shiloh where God was being worshipped there. And in this verse number 1 of Psalm 63, I believe that we see how his heart bursts open in desperation for God. And I believe in this verse we see what is so lacking in our lives. It is a sincere desperation for God as revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, I want you to see a desert comparison. In verse number 1, He said, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee. In a land, and uh, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Obviously, you see the comparison. David is drawing an analogy of his desperation for God as one like someone's desperation for God in a desert land. In a place where water is scarce. Where it can't be found. Now, first of all, before we get there, I want you to note what David says, O oh God, Thou art my God. David starts his desperation with the reality of his possession. He possesses God. God is His. One cannot desire God without his first embracing God as theirs. Romans reiterates, I believe it's the uh, Isaiah's prophecy when he says, There is none that seek after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one that really genuinely seeks God that has not been converted or put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They may, they may want to pursue the novelty of the Bible. They may be intrigued by the gathering of people, the community that is brought together, the rituals of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine, or the, or, or the baptismal pool. They may be intrigued by those things. They may want to investigate those things, but they'll never have a thirst for God until they possess God. David has a thirst for God because he is their God. He is his God. And so one cannot have a thirst for God without uh, possessing God. God revealed in human flesh through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross for our sin and shame, making a way of personal relationship. How, do you, if you want to thirst for God, if you want to have a David-sized desire for God, the first step is do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you been born again? I'm not talking about signing a card. I'm not talking about participating 
in a ritual. I'm talking about life transformation that can't come by a preacher, that doesn't come by religious help. It comes by divine intervention. God does something real, tangible on the inside that nothing else could do. That's what being born again is. You can't have a desire for God. You can't just wake up and say, I want to I kind of get into this religious thing, turn over a new leaf, try to do better, get in church, maybe the stars will align and good things will start happening. That's not what I'm talking about here. If you want to have a desire for God, you must be born again. You must know Him personally within. Change from the inside out. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, where I first laid hold of God as my God, can you say right now in this hour, Oh God, Thou art my God. None else compares to You. You're my God. You're my only source. You're my only worship. You're my only goal. You're my only pursuit. Oh God, You are my God. David then goes on, now that we know his God is the God, David compares his desire for God as that of a thirsty man in the desert. Now, because of the heat of the day and those desert temperatures, I got a friend in high school, and uh, he's a, well, someone I knew in, in early, actually middle school, and he works for a security company, travels all over the world. And so last week, he was, he was around here, and it was cool in the morning, mild in the afternoon. You walk out about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon last week, Oh man, it was just perfect. 72 degrees. He said, uh, he said this morning, he shared a post and said, It was nice last week being in Ringgold and the weather was real 70 something, 40 something early in the morning. And he's in Africa now and it's 109. It's like 105. And by, by, by this afternoon, it'll be 110. Oh man, it's hot in those deserts. And because it gets so hot in the afternoon, they, when they search for water, they don't do it in the heat of the day. Nobody sleeps in in the desert. You get up early in the morning. You get up real early so you can go out in the cool of the day. The most refreshing time of the day. And so David is saying, I am a thirsty man in a desert and I'm going to go out. I'm going to sacrifice the best time of the day not to find physical water, but to find spiritual water. David is saying, I am a thirsty man in the desert when I am not near you. When I don't have you springing up in my soul, I might as well be in a desert dying of thirst. You know, it could be. It could be that David here, he, this might have been written, he might have had shade over his head by some eucalyptus tree. He might have had a jar of water nearby from the wells of Jerusalem. I don't know, from the wells of Bethlehem. Who knows? He might have had all of his creature comforts together. He might have had a nice pillow. He might have had a nice tent. The dew didn't rest on him. Uh, he had a comfortable, maybe, maybe he had comfortable circumstances as far as someone on the run can have. But his, his, his desire was not for those things. His desire was for God. So no matter what he had sitting on the table in his hand, no matter what kind of shade he had over his body, he says, oh God, this is like a dry desert without you. I'm a desperate man without you. I can't be near you. I believe that many of us 
have allowed that which is at hand, that which cools our physical thirst, that which comforts our head from the sun's beaming rays, uh, that cool breeze coming out of the air condition and these financial windfalls that come into our lives, we see those as being plenty. We see those as our wellsprings. Oh, I've got, I've got everything I need. I've got a full bank account. I've got a roof over my head. I've got food in the pantry. I've got, I've got all these things. And we're not thirsty for God. David may well have had everything he needed around him, and yet he cries out to God, Oh God, I'm thirsty. I'm going to die if I don't find you. If I don't see you. If I don't have you. We're, listen, we are drinking sea, the seawater of money and houses and cars and entertainment and employment, and if we continue to do that, we will die. You know, that's what they say. If you're out in the ocean, don't drink the water. It may be miles and miles of water around you, salt water, but if it's salt water, don't drink. You know why? Because all you want to do is drink more and more and more and more. And finally, it starts to corrupt the inside. Listen, that's what we, many of us, I myself included, are drinking in everything this world has to offer, and it rots the insides, and it never quenches the thirst. It never brings joy. It never brings satisfaction and peace only. He does. Only He does. Augustine, one of the great names in early church history, said, after trying to find peace in every sensual indulgence known to man, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and restless is our hearts until it comes to rest in Thee. I don't care, I don't care what the I don't care what the wealthiest of the world portray before the eyes of men. Without God, there is no satisfaction. Without God, there is a restlessness until we rest in Christ. But there's a desert comparison here. And so if we're going to identify a thirst for God, a desire for God, the question is, is your spiritual life seem more like a desert without God? Or does it really not even matter how close you are to God? How much you desire for God? David here, he's like, man, if I don't have you, I am a thirsty man in a desert. And then he defined his craving. What is he, David looking for? He said, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my Oh, my mouth is so parched. My heart is so dry. What does he want? My flesh, I've got to have some. You ever been so hungry? I remember me and my dad were working out yesterday in the yard, digging in the yard, doing some stuff. Man, I got so thirsty. My mama brought out a, a big old thing of water. and Oh, it was so refreshing. My flesh was yearning for that cool water. Listen, is that the way God appears to you? As something that is a thirst, that, that's thirst quenching, that your flesh is just longing for, driving you to. David was like that. He had a craving. He, what does he desire? Look at verse number two. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. 
So what would quench David's thirst? It's not physical water, but it is what? He says in verse number 2, to see thy power and thy glory. To see thy power and thy glory. Now what does he know of the power of God? What does David know of the power of God? Well, he knows first of all of the selecting of God. When God, you know, he wasn't even invited to be chosen as a king. He wasn't even given a chance by his daddy to be the king. He knows something about God's choosing power. He knows something about the power of deliverance when he thrust that stone stone into Goliath's brow. He knows something of the of the of the power of God is witnessed in the sanctuary of God with the worship of God taking place. God's demand for sacrifice. His character is found in the holiness of that place and what He saw in the sanctuary. He says, I want to see Thy power as I've seen it in the sanctuary. Down there where they sacrifice animals. Down there, He also talks about power and glory. You know, when it comes to the sanctuary, it had that Ark of the Covenant. Where do we see the power of God, the Ark of the Covenant? You remember when they were coming out of the, out of the wilderness, going into the Promised Land, and they had that Ark of the Covenant, and they set their foot in the Jordan River. The power of God, it broke those, of those waters apart, so they walked upon the dry ground. Time and time again, they took that Ark of the Covenant, that presence of God, and walked around Jericho again and again, once a day or uh, once a day for six days on the seventh day, seven times. And what did they see? The power of God in taking the walls of Jericho down. David says, "I want that kind of power." And then glory, glory, to see the glory of God, the deliverance of those who are tempted. The the, the, in, the, in the tabernacle where the sacrifices were kept, where the offerings were made, there was pardon to find there. There was peace to find, uh, to find there. There was the, uh, uh, the, the dispensing of peace and pardon. God, I want to see you where I am. When it comes to the glory of God and the sanctuary, you know what I'm talking about. It's that Shekinah glory cloud. You know, in the most holy place in the tabernacle. That, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was, nobody was allowed to go to. It says that the presence of God, like a thick cloud, the glory of God. There were no lights in that upper room, yet it was bright as the noonday sun. Why? Because of the glory of God. The brightness of God shined in that most holy place. He wanted to see the power and the glory of God, but he wanted to see it Right where he was. He's not, obviously, he's not at the tabernacle. He's not at the sanctuary. He's far removed from that. He's saying, God, I just don't crave you when I come to the church and sit on a pew. I crave you at every other place. I crave you everywhere else. You see, uh, this craving uh, for God to be there is not just confined to these walls of this church. But God's power and glory can be seen in the closet of our devotion, in the workplace of our distress, in the bedroom of our despair, at the kitchen table of our difficulty. 
There's where the power and the glory of God can be seen in your life. Not just at the church where you get some goose pimples every now and then. They sing the right song. They do the right key change. You know what I'm saying? And you get the goose pimples on your arm and your hands go even higher to worship. Listen, it's beyond that. It's when you're in the prayer closet and His power and His glory comes. It's when you're at the... What the heck? I thought a bug got me. Bug flew in my eyes. I thought it was a wasp. We've had wasps up here before, guys, and I, I thought a wasp got me. But hey, it can be seen in our worship. It can be seen in our bedrooms. It can be seen in our homes. That power and glory is not just confined to here. It's, can, it's not confined to these places. The power and glory of God can be found anywhere there is a heart that is desirous for God. What do you really want? Do you, by coming to church, are you satisfying a religious itch? You want to you set the right tone for a good week, you know? Well, I've got to be at church so I can have a good week. That's not it at all. What do we really want? Charles Spurgeon made this powerful quote. I read it this morning. I'm not a Charles Spurgeon kind of guy, but listen to what he said. Our misery, quote, our misery is that we thirst so little for these sublime things and so much for the mocking trifles of time and sense. What do we thirst for? What is really at the base of your desires of life? Do you really want to see Jesus' power and glory. Is that the bottom line? Or do I want to just have my house go a little smoother? You know, my life be a little smoother. This was a thirst to see God's attributes. Who God is. His power and His glory. You really want to see Jesus' power and glory? Or do you just let other things occupy your attention? A desire for God is seen in desperation. Second of all, a desire for God is strengthened by delight. By delight. What we desire and long for is often that which we have experienced in the past. You take it, you know, for example, uh, your spouse or you go to, let's say you go to a restaurant and you have a phenomenal meal. It's the greatest thing you've ever eaten in your life. Well, about two or three weeks down the road, you start smacking your lips, your belly's growling a little bit, and you think, oh, I'll tell you what, that restaurant, man, that meal, oh, man, I would love to have that same meal again. You crave it. Maybe your spouse makes a particular meal that you love, and you're going to pester them and pester them until they make it again. Because you want that same taste, that same experience. You want what you've had before. We want to go back to that restaurant, to that meal. We want to have those same things. Well, as David reflects on the power and the glory of the sanctuary he is removed from, God brings home to him some of that power and glory where he is and strengthens his desire for God with delight. The delight of the past 
feeds the hunger, the desire for that which is in the present, in the future. The delight of the past. The delight of the past. First of all, we see a loving realization. Look at verse number three. Uh, verse number three. He said, oh, I want to see your power and your glory. In verse number two, as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. Listen, it's why? Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Loving kindness. I tell you what, that's one of the most wonderful words in the, in the Hebrew language in my heart. Through the years of my ministry, I've always come across this word, loving kindness. It's one of the sweetest words in the Old Testament. It is a word that encompasses a wide range of God's gracious dealings with men. A word that is an expression of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy all rolled into one glorious uh, unit. One power-packed love. Oh, the loving kindness of our God. The most glaring example of the loving, of the loving kindness of God is seen at the cross. From our New Testament vantage point, the loving kindness of God is seen greatest at the cross. There is a book, I highly recommend it. If you would like to have a great uh, devotional adder to what you read from the Bible, not to overtake it, but to read from the Bible, it's called uh, uh, Valley of Vision. It's a... It's a it's a bringing together of different Puritan prayers. Wonderful book. But in one of those prayers that I read several years ago, this Puritan prayer, it brings back the reasoning why the cross is, is, is something that is such a loving kindness of God. Something that stirs our hearts to love. Listen to what this author said. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I may be, might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. Athirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made ashamed, that I might inherit glory. Enter a darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept, that all my tears might be wiped away, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experience reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze upon an unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. <laughs> That's what the cross means to us. It's the great exchange, all of the worst for all of his best. Such loving kindness is truly better than anything. David says it, your loving kindness is for us in the New Testament as looking at the cross of Calvary. His loving kindness is better than life. It's better than wealth. It's better than relationships. It's better than anything. It's better than employments. It's better than achievements. It's better than all. 
His loving kindness is better than all. It's better than life. It's worth more than any possession, any profession of life, any profession of life, more than any popularity of life, more than any pursuit of life, more than any pleasure in life, worth more than any passion in life. It's greater than all. And so many times, this world and its inundations and its dings and rings and demands and appointments drown out the glory and the beauty of the cross of Calvary where Jesus gave all that I might have all. Oh, the love of our Lord Jesus is truly better than life. Oh, how our desire for Him should exceed all other, all other desires. A loving realization. His loving kindness. A lifted response. He said, because of that, my lips shall praise thee. Such heavenly realities drew David, drew from David a response. You know, I told you about that meal a minute ago. Let's say you went to that same restaurant two, three weeks later and you anxiously ordered that meal and it came to your table. Last time you wasn't too sure. Uh, they're under the, you know, you're weighing them out. This time you go to the table, you know what to expect. And you take that big old spoonful and you put that succulent morsel in your mouth and you go, mmm, man, just like I thought it would be. It's a reaction. It's a reaction to satisfaction. Or just like yesterday when they brought that water to me, I was so hot and I drank that water and I go, ah, man, that hit the spot. It's a reaction. It is a reaction to what has brought pleasure. So David responds to God's revelation with, I mean, to put it in any other word, like our analogy, mm, mm, mm. your loving kindness is better than life. Ain't nothing like this, Lord. Ain't nothing like your love. Mm, mm. It releases a reaction of praise. Therefore, my lips shall praise thee. My lips shall utter thanksgivings and praises to God. The word praise here means to address with words of glory or commendation in a loud tone. I get I, People get on to me all the time because I'm so loud when I talk. Well, you need to be loud in your worship too. Hey, every kind, you look up praise in this Bible... It's, you know, people say, well, I just, you know, I just worship God in my heart. I'm just not that type, Brother Ronnie. I don't make a lot of noises when I go to church. I get embarrassed easy. You will never find not one time where praise is ever subdued, ever brought in, ever squelched. It is always an outward exposure of an inward felt, uh, an inward satisfaction. Amen. A lifting up of the hands, a clapping of the hands, a lifting of the voice, an opening of the mouth. It is always visible. It is always vocal. The word bless, he said, will I bless thee. The word bless here literally means to kneel. Here's what David is describing. Oh Lord, your love, your loving kindness, your grace, 
Your mercy are greater than life. I bless your name. It means to kneel. It means to extend the hand, to lift up the voice. It is a visible posture, an act of adoration. While I have life within me, David is saying, I will fall down and worship your greatness. David is saying that I lift up my hand in your name. It is said of pious Jews in every place of their scattering, in all their prayers and praises, they stretch out their hand. You'll find that posture noted several times in the Scripture. He lifting up his hands, prayed to God. Worship of God in this Old Testament context, and not really in any context, it is perfectly acceptable to raise those hands to God. It's what David did here. His response was that of worship. Again, we're so timid in our worship and reserve and our response to God. But if we will truly desire God, if we will see His loving kindness found in the fact that we are hell-deserving sinners who were snatched as a brand plucked from the burning, set in the hand of an almighty God, protected and covered by walls and bulwarks, no one can pluck me from His hand. I'll go through the rest of my life and nothing can change what God did in my heart. Not time, not lethargy, not punishment, not wealth, not anything can change what He did in my heart. Oh, listen, that is what we're suggesting here, that we would see that we were hell-deserving sinners, saved by the grace of God, snatched from the flames of a burning hell by Jesus that was put on an old rugged cross for us, where Jesus died, the Son of God died for the sons of men. It ought to elicit a response Worship, desire for God. Thirdly and lastly, desire for God is seen in a desperation. David pictured it as being thirsty in a desert. Whether you have every luxury around you or not, if, if you don't have His power and glory, if you haven't seen it in a while, it ought to make us thirsty. There's also strengthened by delight. We thirst for something because we've had it before. We've seen it before. We've experienced it before. Here, thirdly, signified through a devotion. Devotion. Look at verse number 5. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and, the, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When? When I remember thee. How's it going to be satisfied? Remembrance. What's the marrow and fatness? That's the best part. Everybody likes to put that fat away, but I'm telling you, that's the best part of a steak. Is that fat? I love that fat. Man, that fat's good. The best part of that chicken is that little bit of fat on it. Oh, man, it's good. David said, I'll be nourished by fatness and the best morsels. Wow. When I remember thee upon thy bed, meditate on thee in my night watches. Because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. David is suddenly not a man that is thirsty and desperate. He's talking about satisfaction. He's talking about being fulfilled. 
And it relates to us how his desire was fulfilled. In these final verses, we see his devotion to God just as the farmer must seek out water for his field, so must we continue to seek for needed refreshment. First of all, we see a routine of remembrance. He said, verse number 5 ends with a colon. He, I point this out. He said, oh, my lips shall praise thee. I'll be satisfied more than fatness. My lips shall praise thee, colon. That means here's the, here's the reason why. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate upon thee in the night, watches when I remember when I meditate all that David knows about the Lord is revealed in his word all David knew about God the character of God other than what he had experienced of God's favor and blessing in his life he knew from God's word so we see here that David is thinking on and meditating on the revealed Word of God. I tell you, this is a picture of a devotional life. Devotion, devotion is not a book. You understand that, right? Devotion is not a book with a scripture and a place you write stuff down. Devotion is a word defined by love and commitment to a person. If you are a devoted husband, if you are a devoted life, wife, that means that your, your love and commitment is to that person. That's devotion. Devotion is just not a book with words in it and places for you to fill in the blank. Devotion is committed activity driven by love. We know God we that possess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are, 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 are given time to the are to give time to the reading of the Bible and the study of God's Word. You want to know more about the character of God? You want to peel back the layers and see the glory of God, the power of God beyond what, what we see in our life, but down through history. You want to see the magnificent truth of who God is? We find it in the Word. In God's Word. Listen, we are to devour... I read a, read a quote from someone last week. Talked about, it talked about uh, the reading of God's Word and says that every Christian ought to be like a miner. Like a coal miner. A miner, when they read God's Word, unearthing treasure... Looking for treasure in God, like a pickaxe. And you, you go in this book, and you're looking for treasure. You're looking for His Word. You're look, not, not looking for His Word. You're finding His Word. You're finding those truths. You're finding those things that apply right where you are. You're finding exactly what you need. You're mining in God's Word. That's devotion. Love-driven activity. Devoted to God. Seeking out his God. You don't read the Bible because the preacher says you need to. You ought to. You read the Bible because you want to know him. You want to know more of God. If you're, if you're knowing God by just experience, you've got a really thin Bible. Really thin. Compared to what this book says about our God and how we can trust God. Here we see that devotion. 
It's a routine. It's a routine. I find it interesting that David's pursuit of God is not so much a twice a week thing as it is in verse number 1 in the morning. He said, early will I seek thee in verse number 1. In verse number 2, it's in the daytime to see thy power and thy glory as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. It indicates a daytime public worship. And then also in verse number 6, it talks about upon the bed. In the night watches, late in the night. Brother Ronnie, when, when should I read the Bible? When is the best time? Well, there is something to be said about early in the morning. But then there's something to be said about the, in the afternoon time. There's something to be said about the evening time. Anytime's a good time to pick up God's Word and see who He is and what He knows and what He's able to do for us and what we can do for Him and how we are to trust Him. Anytime's a good time to pick up God's Word find it interesting again and the, all these different times and periods of the day David is referring to that that desire that thirst after God a life that desires God is signified by a routine of daily thinking on and worshiping God let me say that again a life that desires God is signified by a routine of daily thinking on and worshiping God. It wasn't just reading a chapter a day to keep the devil away. It wasn't just reading a chapter so you could check a box. It was reading so that we might respond in worship. There's a difference. You know what I'm talking about? There's a difference between just reading your Bible and reading your Bible with a willingness to respond to what God says. If God says something in His Word that ought to chasten my heart or to cause me to repent, I respond. Oh God, make myself right. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. I change direction. Make it right within me to something that talks about His love, His mercy. We respond in praise and thanksgiving unto Him. Several times in the Scriptures we are told that individuals... They set themselves to seek the Lord. There was uh, the King Asa. King Asa was a young king that it says in his early days, he set himself to seek the Lord. I'm, I'm constantly reminding people that have difficulty in their devotional life and their family life, is the life of a believer is a life of constant new beginning. Start over. Set yourself to seek the Lord. That's what that phrase means to me. It speaks to my heart. Sit yourself. Put yourself in the place of, I'm going to seek the Lord. You made a decision. I'm going to seek God. Away with my past. I know I've messed up in the past, but right now, I'm setting myself to seek the Lord. I'm setting myself in a direction where I'm going I'm to find Him as the thirst-fulfilling, the thirst-fulfilling, the, the thirst-fulfilling uh, destiny of my life. I'm going to find Him. I'm going to seek the Lord. A routine of remembrance, also a refuge of rejoicing. Look at verse number 7. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Thou hast been my help. I'm sure that David's mind recalled not only the recent deliverances from Saul's spear eluding his capture, but further past deliverances. And maybe David, again, experience is a thin Bible. 
Don't just go by experience in your life as to be your own revelation of God and who He is and what He's done. Because oftentimes in our thin little Bible, there are things that happen that we would not want to happen. Things that would come to pass that we would rather not want. And so that disparages our view of God. You don't want to go by your thin Bible of experience because all of our experiences are like this. Up and down, back and forth, back, lows of lows, highs of highs. Get your experience from what we know of Him in God's Word. Stands the test of time. But He says, but that, that's, not, that's not to disparage though experience. He says, you've been my help, Lord. You've been my help. Not only about Saul, but about Goliath. Not only Goliath, but when he was a shepherd and the lion attacked him and the bear attacked him, when nobody was around, when he wasn't the hero of the nation, when no eyes were upon him, but only the eyes of God, God protected him. God kept him saying, oh God, you've been my help, my strength. When he stood unflinchingly before Goliath, when he was delivered from the lion and the bear, surely David could say, Goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. One preacher said, This is the grand use of memory to furnish us with proofs of the Lord's faithfulness. It's one thing to see how He was faithful to the unfaithful children of Israel by bringing manna from the sky. It's one thing to look and see how God was faithful to deliver the Apostle Paul or to feed 5,000 hungry hearts, hungry, hungry bellies on a hillside. It's one thing for that. It's another thing to have experienced that yourself. God's answer to prayer. God working in your family, in your home, in your marriage, in your church. David also refers to, look at what he says in verse number 7, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. When David refers to the shadows of his wings, many believe that he is referring to the wings of the cherubim. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? you remember the mercy seat made of slab of gold with these decorative angels that are looking down with wings outstretched? You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Those wings that stretch out. Many believe when David says, under the shadow of your wings, he's talking about those wings of the cherubim. You know what that means? That's as close in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament vantage point, that is as close to God as you could possibly get. Right next to the Ark of the Covenant. With the Shekinah glory presence of God right above your head. Look at what he says. He says, because I've been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. In the shadow of the wings of God. You know what David found? A wellspring in a desert. He started the chapter thirsty for God. I'm like, a, I'm like a person in the desert. I can't find water. Oh God, save me. To the end, he's under the shadow of the wings and he is 
satisfied. Praising God neath the shadow, rejoicing neath the shadow of the wing. Realize that David isn't, and also realize that David is far removed from the tabernacle. He's in the wilderness land, and yet he's rejoicing in the refuge of God's presence. Child of God, when you enter into that morning devotion, when you crack the Bible on your bedside before you pillow your head, know that through Jesus Christ you're as close to God as you'll ever get. You're as close to God as His dear Son. He said in Ephesians, we're already seated in the heavenlies. How is that possible? Brother Ronnie, I'm seated in Faith Community Church right now. How is it possible I'm seated in the heavenlies? Because your, your Savior, the Lord Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father. I am in Him and He is in me. I'm with Father. I'm as close to God as I could possibly get. It causes us to rejoice in the refuge of God's presence. How to have a desire for God, number one. It's seen in desperation. Are you desperate for God? Or are you desperate for everything else in the world? Are you strengthened by delight? So many of you at Faith Community Church, I don't have the history of this place, but you've regaled me with times of, of God moving, of God working in people's hearts and saving souls and just doing the miraculous in this building. Let that delight translate in a desire for God to do it now. Now, here in my heart. Whether it happens in these pews or not, God, what you did in my heart then, do in my heart now. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. It's signified through devotion. There's a steady pursuit of God. Seek Him. The encouragement of Jeremiah. Seek the Lord. Seek Him as fine gold, the psalmist says. Seek Him as treasure. Mine Him out of God's Word. Seek Him. William Law, born 1683 to 1761, was a Church of England priest who, through conviction, was ostracized by the Church of England. Unable to hold a pastor or teach at the university, he began to write extensively. His books, this book here, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. That book right there, when you read in history of people that converted and did great things in the kingdom of God in that time period, you will find somewhere that book mentioned. I think it's something we all need to recover and try to find and read. But A Serious Call to a Devoted and Holy Life and a practical treatise upon Christian perfection had a deep influence. This man, William Law, had a deep influence on John and Charles Wesley. God used them to bring revival to England. And George Whitfield who brought revival to England, England and to the Americas in the Great, Great Awakening. Prominent leaders in the evangelical revival. In his book on Christian perfection, listen to what he said. All people desire what they believe will make them happy. If a person is not full of desire for God, we can only conclude that he is engaged with other happiness. It's hard to love God wholeheartedly. We all know that. 
So why do we not remove as many hindrances as possible? Do you hear what he said? People desire what they believe will make them happy. If a person is not full of a desire for God, we conclude that there are other things engaged that bring happiness. He's saying, why don't we remove those things? Centuries later, in somewhat of a formula of personal revival, A.W. Tozer said this, Set your face like flint toward a sweeping transformation of your life. Timid experiments are tagged for failure before they start. You must throw, uh, we must throw our whole soul into our desire for God. I believe that's what David did. Oh God, I'm thirsty for thee. Throw our whole soul into a desire for God. The question of these verses again. Where is our consuming desire for God? What is standing in the way of that desire? You and God are the only ones that can answer that question. Where's your hunger for God? Where is my hunger for God? Where is my devotion to Jesus? Where is our thirst for the only thing that will last forever? The spiritual engagement with God. Do we really desire? Do we really hunger and thirst after God more than our food? More than our drink? More than our money? More than our position? Where is our thirst for God? We will not see His power and His glory without it. We will never see. We will never see God do what He's done before in places of our enjoyment of worship and our family and our marriages in our churches. We will never see it again if we cannot be intentional, desirous. Nothing else will substitute. Nothing else will do but you. I want you more than anything. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you cannot claim, oh God, thou art my God. You're, he's not your God. You've never been regenerated from the inside, changed. You've never been born again. Such a radical transformation. It is a new life. I beg you to come. Embrace the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross for your sin. You've broken God's law. You're guilty in the judgment. You stand in the judgment of God. Jesus Christ on the cross bore your judgment. If you will receive Him, you'll have the forgiveness of sin. You'll be born again. His Spirit will come to indwell in you. You'll be saved by God's grace. If you're not saved, come know Him. Come draw close to Him. Trust Him as Lord and Savior for you that have. And I imagine I'm talking to the majority in this room. I myself included. What has overtaken your thirst for God? What has overtaken your thirst for God? Every one of us to one degree or another have fallen into the trap of being satisfied by everything else in the world except God. I included. My relationship with Jesus Christ is on the second and third tier. It's not that, I mean, it's important. You know, it's, 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 it's got to be a certain amount of importance. I'm here on Sunday, but it's not a preeminent purpose. I'm preaching as much to you as I am to anybody else. 
I need to have a fresh desire in my heart to see what God had done in the past, do in the present. I need to be mining His Word, asking God for, for help, strength, example, purification, forgiveness, ending bitterness and strife in my own heart. I need to be mining God's Word for those things so that I might behold His power and His glory. That's what I want. I want to see it again. I saw it in Temple from uh, in my home church as a young man in Temple from 19, uh, about 2000 to 2003, 2004. I saw the glory of God. I saw the power of God. I want to see it again. And I have, I have to have the mindset that I'm, going to, I'm not going to stop until I will die of thirst if I don't see it again. God, give us that heart for this place. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that You would help these verses to just bog into our heart. This week and next week, may it pester us to death. Where is my devotion to God? Where is my desire for God? I want it back. Milk that desire away from everything else in the world and put it back on You. God, help my desire for God. I want my desire to be back for you. Help this Psalm 63 to shake us to our core. And God, put our priority back on you. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.